as you're taking your seat, go ahead and, and grab your Bible and open up to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. I want to begin by reading our text. We're picking up kind of midway through Ephesians chapter 5, or sorry, just out at the beginning there in verse 7. We began a, really a two-part sermon last week, and, and the title of the sermon is The Art of Imitation, and it flows directly out of verse 1 of chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul calls us to therefore be imitators of God. And so this is part two this morning. Last week we saw that we are called to walk in love, and this week we're going to see how we are called to walk in light and to walk in wisdom. Here's what Paul says, beginning in verse 7. He says, Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light." Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit." addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We imitate because we all inherently know that we are made to represent someone else. Every one of us imitates somebody, as we saw last week, and this begins at an early stage, but I want you to see that this is inherent within us. It's part of the very fabric of our DNA. God has hardwired us this way for a reason, and all we need to do is go right back to the very beginning of the Word of God to understand this principle. You see, God has made us from the beginning, men and women, for the very purpose of imaging himself. We're made in the image of God. That doesn't just mean that we're actually made up of qualities that are like God. It means that we're made with a very distinct purpose of representing and reflecting, of imaging God to the world around us. This is true, especially when it comes to saving faith and becoming a new creation. And Paul has been laying out this theology in the book of Ephesians. You see, with the new birth, we become a new creation, that language linking us all the way back to the very beginning of God's purposes for us, and we join a new family, a family that God intends to reverse the curse, to reflect his image in the way that we were originally designed to reflect it. We were never created for the very purpose of self-expression. The world would have us believe that that's why we exist, to be ourselves, to express ourselves, to demonstrate what's so unique about us. That is a very secular and anti-biblical way of thinking. It is never to be about our self-expression. If we are followers of Jesus Christ, it is to be about God's reflection shining through us to the world around us. Amen? Ultimately, we will image what we imitate. 
And our imitation of God began, as we saw last week, with a call to walk in love. And that is especially true as it relates to our sexual ethics, how we relate to one another and to relate in terms of our sexual morality and purity. And that is inherent in how we love one another. But here, Paul picks up with a call to do two things, as we saw in the text. The first is to walk in light, and the second is to walk in wisdom. And this is how we will imitate God best. As we walk in love and we walk in light and we walk in wisdom, we imitate God and we will image God. So how do we do that? What does it look like and what does it mean to walk first in light? You'll notice what Paul says in verses 7 and 8 and here's how you can think about this. It's who you are. To walk in light requires that you first understand that this is actually who you are. And again, what we see Paul doing is linking our behavior back to our belief linking our living back to our identity. He anchors us first in the reality of who we are. Here Paul launches into this metaphorical language of light and darkness, and the symbolism of darkness and light is incredibly important to understand biblically and especially in this context. Darkness represents ignorance or error or evil. He's talked about The Gentiles who do not know God living in darkness, at one time in darkness. Light, on the other hand, represents truth and righteousness, purity and holiness. It represents a life with God. A life that is freed from the bondage of sin, called out of the prison of sin and darkness. I want you to notice, though, what he says here very specifically in verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them. And into verse 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. I wonder if you caught the language there. He does not say that they used to be in darkness, although that would be true. And biblically speaking, Paul actually communicates this elsewhere. What Paul writes here is more striking than being removed from a place of darkness and into a place of light. What he describes here is a radical transformation that speaks to our identity. He doesn't say you are simply living in the light. He says, in fact, that you actually are light. And this is so important to understand. You see, by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ, being in Christ, as Paul has described, especially in Ephesians chapter 1, we are brought into union with the light of the world, and as a result, we actually become light ourselves. One commentator illustrates the idea of what it means to reflect the light to the world around us, and he compares that Jesus Christ and, and Jesus being exalted to heaven as the sun setting and the church or followers of Christ as the moon that now rises. He says the moon is a picture of believers and the church. And he says these words, he said, the church shines but not with its own light. It shines with a reflected light as the moon reflects the light of the sun and does not in itself have its own light. He says, at times the church has been a full moon dazzling the world with almost daytime light. Those were great times of great enlightenment, for example, in the days of Paul and Luther and Wesley. He says, at other times the church has been only a thumbnail moon, and in those days very little light shone on the earth. 
But whether the church is a full moon or a thumbnail moon, whether waxing or waning, it reflects the light of Christ. Our light, he says, does not originate with us. But here what we see is that we don't simply just reflect the light of God, we actually become light ourselves. Our identity in Christ, in other words, is so strong, we actually participate, listen to this church, in the divine nature. We become like God, in a sense, and that makes perfect sense because we have within us, don't we, the spirit of the living God. The Spirit of God lives within us. And by the way, as you read through Scripture, the Spirit's work is an illuminating work, shining light into the darkness of our lives, enlightening the eyes of our heart to behold and to see and believe the light of Jesus Christ and to make us, as a result of seeing that and beholding that, more like Jesus Christ. This is the progressive work of the Spirit of God within us. He makes us like Jesus, so we, in a sense, begin to function like Jesus. We shine like the very light of the world himself. And you know what's so fascinating to think about? When you think about how God has made us light already in Christ, do you realize that in eternity we will actually be part of the light as well? You realize in eternity, in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no sun because the glory of the Lord will shine so brightly. But do you realize that you and I will actually be a part of the light of the new heavens and the new earth? Listen to what Matthew 13 verse 43 says. It says, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Look, the heavens declare the glory of God, but we share the glory of the Father in Christ. There is a glory awaiting us that involves in some mysterious way shining. But let us not simply look to the future for this shining. Let us realize that this is who God has made us to be. It is, it is believer, follower of Christ. It's who you are. You are light in the Lord. And secondly, it's what you do. It's what you do. You see, if you realize who you are, you understand that this should have a radical impact on what you do, on how you actually live your life. And so here we have the words of Paul telling us to walk as children of light. We are to be imitators of God and to walk as children of light. And then he describes this for us in verse 9. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And he says a part of this is to try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. He gets into our behavior now, and he he tells us again, the light metaphor tells us that we're called to do two things as we, we do this, as we walk as children of the light. And you can kind of frame this with two separate words. One, we're called to exhibit the light, and our light is called to expose the darkness. There's a positive and a negative effect that our lives should have and the way we live should have in the the world around us that is trapped in darkness because of sin. The first piece here is to exhibit the light. That Really, that means simply this, to walk in holiness and purity, to have our lives so radically altered by our relationship with Jesus Christ that holiness becomes a part of what we put on every day. Purity, set apart from sin. Paul says that the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. That phrase there, the fruit of light, it describes the result of dwelling in God's light. 
It's what happens the more you draw near to God, the more you spend time with God, the more you become like God. And we see this on a daily basis. We become like those we put ourselves around, don't we? I mean, those we look up to, those we hang around, those we are interacting with most, I mean, they begin to rub off on us whether we see it or not. Our language changes, our behavior changes, the type of things we like and enjoy can often change. Listen, so too with God. To be much with God is to become much like God. And God is all of those things in complete fullness and in totality. He is good and right and true. In one sense, what Paul is describing here is what he's already laid out in the book of Ephesians for us. That those of us who have been saved are saved for good works. He says that in Ephesians chapter 2. That we're saved for righteous living. And that we're saved to be speakers and livers of the truth. You see, as his imitators, Christians do that which is good, right, and true because that is exactly who God is. Ultimately, this is speaking of our character and our integrity. And you see, we exhibit light by seeking to as well be pleasing to the Lord. That's what Paul says in verse 10. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Really, this is such a sweet summary statement for how we should be living our lives every single day. Every single day, this should be the desire of our hearts. Lord, what is going to be pleasing to you today? God, what would you delight in today? God, what would you take joy in today? God, if you were, if you were looking at me right here, right now, which he is, what would you say, son, that is pleasing to me? Child, that is pleasing to me. We ought to inherently want to please our Father. Listen, not, not, not to earn His love for us, but because of His love for us. I've been telling this to my children a lot lately, and parents, this is, this is maybe helpful for you. I'll, I'll sit down with my children, and when we talk about obedience, I'll do two things with them. I'll say, I'll say um, Karis, Josh especially, Caleb still too young, but I, I say, who are you? And the response that I'm training them to, to say is this, I'm your child. It's good. Listen, this, this is really important. This sounds really funny, but I just want you to see. I, 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 and then here's the second question. And what are you? And I'm, I'm teaching them to say this, I'm loved by you. I say, that's right. That's why I want you to obey me. See that? I never want you to obey me to earn my love. There's nothing you could do or not do that's going to earn or lose my love for you. And I just, I want you to see this is the way God loves us. And this is why we obey. Don't you realize? You obey out of your identity. It's because of who you are. You're my child and I love you. And so you should obey me. That's why. And you know, parent, listen, listen. This is why we obey God, church. This is why we obey God. Because of who he is. He is our loving father. Amen. And it's a joy to be pleasing to our Father. And He's been nothing but good to us, and so it should be a sweet desire for us to say, God, I want everything in my life to be pleasing to you. And, and church, this is so important because, listen, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you, you will not please everybody, and you cannot please everybody. And this is such a problem. It's epidemic in our, our sin-cursed culture and in so many of our lives. We're, we're people pleasers. We long to be accepted by everyone else around us. We hate the thought of somebody not liking us, not valuing us, not appreciating us, and instead of focusing Focusing on that, we ought to focus on how God sees us. Like you're going to be mocked. If you follow Jesus faithfully, you're going to be mocked. You're not going to be welcomed. You're not going to be liked in a lot of circles. 
You're going to be told you live in a stone age because you believe in the Bible. You're going to be told you're old school because of the values and morals that you hold. You're going to be told you're out of step with the culture. You've got to get with the times. I mean, just expect this. But we must keep coming back to this fundamental question, what will please the Lord? And if that's how we live, who cares if it pleases anybody else? And you see, walking in the light pleases the Lord. Unfortunately, however, it's possible to live in the light, to be light, and to enjoy light with also, without also adopting some attitude towards those who still live in the darkness and to their lifestyle. And so Paul here wants us to see that there is a negative aspect to what we do that will oftentimes have a, a challenging and a conflicting and a confronting effect on the world around us. And so he says that we don't just exhibit light and the fruits of light, we're actually called to expose the darkness. And in verse 10 and 11, look at what he says. In 12, he says, And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Uh, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. It's very explicit here. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Again, remember the they is that those who are without God in this world, they're living in darkness. They live for the, the sins of the world and their fleshly desires. Paul says, Here's what you're called to do, expose the darkness. You see, while the light produces the fruit of goodness and righteousness and truth, the works of darkness are unfruitful. It's the word he uses. In other words, they're unproductive, they're barren, they're lifeless. They have no beneficial result, no positive net effect. It's all destructive in the end. It's all empty and futile. And so he says we're not to take part in them. Remember, this is part of what Paul is doing. He's calling us away from this. Don't, don't, lo, don't any longer live like that. You're different now. Here's who God's made you to be. Don't go back there. We need these reminders constantly because there's a pull to go back to what we know is wrong. And so he says don't participate in those unfruitful, unproductive, barren works of darkness. And instead, expose them. You can translate that as, as one translation. Says, Show them for what they truly are. The word expose carries the idea of correcting or convincing someone. You see, walking in the light, um, contrary to what some people may believe even in this room, it does not mean avoiding contact with the world around us. Oftentimes in Christian circles, we believe that the world is going to infect us so much so that we kind of isolate ourselves in these little Christian bubbles, right? I mean, we just, if, if I go near an unbeliever, they're going to just rub off on me instantly. And yet the Word of God tells us that we actually must be in the world around us if we are to reach the world around us. But you see, the way in which we're around the world matters very, very much. Walking in the light means that we must interact with the people around us who are in darkness. And it means, by the way, when we do that, that we are living a holy life. And it means that we're willing to confront the darkness. 
And though this text does not tell us how to do that specifically, it for sure means, listen, with words and deeds. In other words, listen, the world around us, it's so secular, it's so anti-God, there is a desperate need for the church to be the church in how we live, but in how we speak. When the world comes around us and tells us that sin is no longer sin, it needs the church to speak up and say, actually, let me tell you what God says. The greatest danger right now for the church is in being silent when the world around us is screaming about what morality or immorality is or isn't. Sadly, so often as the world shifts into this kind of secular mentality, hyper-sexualized, just sin-saturated world, the church is, is feeling like, if I speak up, I'm going to get my hand slapped. Who cares? Get your hand slapped. It's time for us to stand up and be willing to speak on behalf of God to the world around us. And this trickles into the church as churches are embracing things that the world is pushing upon them, unwilling to call sin, sin. And this is not what God calls us to do. He calls us not to embrace darkness, but to expose darkness. And listen, church, we need so much wisdom and discernment. We need so much gentleness and love and compassion. But we need so much courage and strength at the same time to be who God has called us to be and to do what God has called us to do. Paul says here that light illuminates darkness. These secret, you notice that the secret and shameful deeds, you know, we can't even mention the things that they do in secret. They're so shameful. Isn't that so true with sin? Sin loves to hide in darkness. So much sin happens under the cover of darkness. And yet, as the church... We are called by the way we live and speak to expose the darkness for what it is. You want to know who did this best of all? Jesus. I mean, Jesus everywhere. You just read through the Gospels and just do this kind of this thought experiment. Just read through the Gospels. Watch how Jesus lived. Look how Jesus spoke. Everywhere he went. You want to know what was happening? Darkness was being exposed left, right, and center in people's lives. I mean, people were convicted of their sin, and they were so angry with him, with the righteousness of his life, with the words that he spoke, that they wanted him dead all the time. But at the same time, Jesus lived in such a way that so many people's sin was brought out into the dark or out of darkness into the light that they were broken and came repenting and trusting in him. You see, the life and actions of the believer expose the work of darkness in the world. And we're called, church, to not blend in but to stand out. We're called not to shut down but to reach out and to speak out. And we can't do that if we're living in isolation. We must be a presence, the salt and light that we're called to be in the world around us. And, and here's the third thing you need to know about walking light. It's why we're here. It's why you're here. It's why God saved you. It's for this purpose. And here Paul elaborates the purpose of the exposure of evil. He says, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. You see, first, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Th this is always good. Darkness hides the ugly realities of evil. The light makes them visible. A darkness hides the ugly reality of sin. The light exposes it for what it truly is. This is the intention of the, the text this morning. 
And when evil is seen for what it is, it's only then that it can actually be dealt with properly. Secondly, notice that he says that anything that becomes visible is light. You notice that's that weird language he uses here. It's not just that the light exposes the darkness to make it visible. It's that when it is exposed, when it becomes visible, it actually is then light. And he seems here to be describing a second stage of what the light actually does. You see, it actually transforms what it illuminates into light itself. So a Christian who leads a righteous life restrains and reforms evil around us in our communities and in our culture. But notice this, it actually is used by God to bring people into the light and make them light themselves. And church, you've got to feel the weight of responsibility that's been placed upon us. Exposure sounds like such a negative term. The idea of showing people what they are. A lot of us kind of recoil uh, at the thought of that. It sounds so judgmental and condemning. And in one sense, listen, it is. It is offering a judgment upon actions and behaviors, not because of our standard, but because of God's standard. It is, in a sense, condemning because God says that these things will ultimately be judged and condemned. In fact, let me remind you of what Jesus said in John 16, 8. Speaking of the role of the Spirit of God, remember, the Spirit comes when Jesus goes, right? This is what, in in Acts, they're waiting for the Spirit, they're praying for the Spirit, and then God unleashes the Spirit upon them. But listen to what Jesus says about the coming of the Spirit. What is he going to do? What's his primary role? One of his primary roles, listen to this, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So how does he do that? You think about that? Well, let me just, let's just kind of back up. Where does the Spirit come to when he comes? Does he just float around mysteriously? No, he comes into believers, right? The indwelling presence of the Spirit of God in believers. This is the context Jesus is talking about. So, so then how do we relate this idea of the Spirit convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment? It means this, that God so transforms us by the inner working of His Spirit in our lives and then uses us to expose the works of darkness to bring people into light. The light which exposes darkness has a positive evangelistic power to it. The the light of one soul making another light. It may bring people, listen, as they see the ugliness of evil to conviction of their sin and the reality of, of impending judgment and condemnation before God to a place of humble repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, this is one of our greatest responsibilities. You wonder why God, when he saved you, didn't zap you up to heaven in an instant? It's because of this. God looks at you and says, listen, I have made you a light. You are a burning light. You're like a candle that I have lit on fire. And there's a whole bunch of other candles all around you. And their wicks are black and dark. And they have not tasted the goodness and beauty and truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So go take the light that you are. And go begin to touch those wicks and light them on fire too. And in verse 14, he really sums this up. 
Therefore, it says, and some people believe that this is kind of a summation of some Old Testament passages from Isaiah and maybe a few other places in the Old Testament. This, it's, there's not a lot of clarity. Some um, more modern-day scholars actually believe this was likely an Easter hymn, so fitting with Easter coming up next weekend. And I don't know what exactly it is. It's, it's likely some kind of song or hymn or chorus that was sung in the life of the early church. He, he speaks as if they should be familiar with it, but the truth of what it says is what is most important, not how it was ultimately used. Listen to the words. He says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. God has made his light so that those around us might be awakened from their spiritual slumber. This is the way he, he, he uses all kinds of metaphors to describe people who are in their sin, who are in the world, who are in darkness, and the one he chooses here is that they're sleeping. They're asleep spiritually, and they desperately need somebody to run into their bedroom, to jump on their bed, and wake them up. Flip the light on in the cold blackness of their bedroom. This is why we're here, to be used by God to awaken a sleeping world. But listen, it is impossible to awaken a sleeping world if we are a sleeping people and a sleeping church. There are so many Christians who are awake and yet sleeping. And you know, one, one, of, the, one of the just basic realities of being asleep is that when you're asleep, oftentimes you don't even know it. How many of us are like that teenage version of ourselves who was sleeping our life away, right? And here, Paul says, listen, church, if you want to awaken this world so that Christ can shine on them, you better be making sure that you are awake yourself. Are you awake spiritually? Are you really awake to the things of the Lord? Is your heart beating for the things of God or the things of this world? Have you been distracted from the things of the Lord for the things of the world? Have you truly cast off the deeds of darkness or have you run back to them? Are you taking part in them or have you truly resisted and refrained? Are you living in them or are you exposing them? Is your life characterized by all that is good and right and true, or is it at least progressively moving in that direction? Listen, so that as Christ has shone in you, he might shine in and through you to the world around us. It's so imperative that we realize that God is calling us to wake up. And if we're going to walk in light, it's crucial that we also learn, secondly here, to walk in wisdom. Paul shifts the analogy, he's moved from walking in love to, no, to walking in light, and now he reminds us that we're children who are called to walk in wisdom. And again, what you're going to see here is that Paul begins first by pressing into our identity. It's first who we are that matters. 
Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most the best use of your time because the days are evil. And one of the things that we need to embrace is that we have actually been made wise. If you're a follower of Christ, you've been made wise in the greatest sense possible. You might not know all the mysteries in the world, but you know the greatest mystery in the world, that God created it and that he came to save you. Paul says this to Timothy, that the scriptures had led him uh, made him wise, it says, unto salvation by faith in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 3.15. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 that we have understood the wisdom of God. It's not the wisdom of the world, but it is most certainly the wisdom of God, and we've actually been transformed by it. But we need to understand, too, that wisdom is not just theoretical or intellectual. It is deeply practical, The very nature and concept of wisdom implies practical Christian living. In fact, wisdom can actually be defined as the practical application of knowledge. Wisdom is not simply knowing the right thing to do. It's actually doing the right thing. Paul says here that it requires that we look carefully then how we walk. There is a carefulness required to being wise. There is a kind of scrutiny and inspection and examination that is necessary as we live this life to make sure that it is truly lining up with what God would have us do. In a sense, what Paul is saying is there can't be a flippancy to the way we live our lives. There must be an increasing intentionality There must be a a thoughtfulness to the way we live our lives, and I think this is so opposite of the way that many of us live our lives. We're very haphazard, especially when it comes to the things of the Lord. Maybe we're very intentional with certain areas of our lives. We're very strategic, we're very disciplined, and and we're we're very um, oriented towards certain goals in our lives, but when it comes to the things of the Lord, are those the things that are taking precedent and that we are very careful with? You know, because the reality is when you get that right, everything else falls into place. So here's what he says we need to do. If we're going to walk in wisdom, just embrace this concept. We need a clear urgency. We need a clear urgency. In 1947, members of what is called the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, Science and Security Board, it's a bit of a mouthful, they created what's come to be known as the doomsday clock. You ever heard of that? It's a giant clock that is a symbol which represents the likelihood of a man-made global catastrophe. Global nuclear war, more recently the focus has been on climate change. Midnight on the clock represents the catastrophe itself. And the clock, just over the years since its inception, has been adjusted 22 times, ranging from 17 minutes to midnight all the way to two minutes, which it is currently sitting at, just so you know. Two minutes left, people. Sweet. That's good. Even the secular world understands the reality that time is short. Listen, clocks don't just tell us the time. They remind us that for each one of us, time is actually running out. Let 
wise men of old, you'll see pictures every once in a while of scholars, philosophers, theologians, and they have a skull on their desk. You ever seen those? I mean, like, that is so weird. It gets really creepy, actually. Do, do you realize they did that as a constant reminder of their own mortality? That every time they saw it, it was a symbol, time is running out for me. I need to make the best use of my time. They're sitting at their desk trying to do things for the Lord and being reminded time is running out. Time is running out. One day I too will be in the grave. Isn't this why Solomon said it's better, it's better to actually go to a funeral than it is to go to a party? Why? Why? Because we need those constant reminders that this life is coming to an end for every one of us. There's no, there's no listen, I don't know how long you're going to live. I don't know how long I'm going to live. All I know is this, that 100% of every person dies. The odd exception biblically. And as Christians, we, we see the world understands that there's a possibility that this could all blow up. They've got it all wrong, right? The best part of being a Christian is we know the end of the story, don't we? Like we've, we've got everything we need so that we live in light of our own mortality. We understand what the Word of God teaches, that this is indeed all coming to an end one day. There is a day coming when there will be a trumpet sound, and the King of kings and the Lord of lords will come riding on a cloud, and his feet will touch down upon the mountain and split the mountain, and the end will be here. And we're given throughout Scripture countless, countless exhortations to live every day as if it might be our last, as if Jesus could return at any moment. I mean, the parables that Jesus told himself are staggering when you look at the cumulative evidence for how Jesus wants us to live. Like, come on, people, wake up, get ready. I mean, time is short. Don't be caught doing what you shouldn't be doing. And Paul is reminding us here that, listen, how we live matters. We're living in the last days. Biblically speaking, we are in the last days, and we must learn to identify the things that are wasting our time, listen, so that we can prioritize everything else relentlessly to the glory of God. Is that how you're living? Do you have clarity in terms of how short your life really is? Do you have clarity in terms of what really matters most? Do you have clarity on how that you, you this morning, listen, I'm gonna just let this whole spirit of God do its work. I'm not even gonna give you examples. Do you have clarity this morning on how you are wasting time in your life right now? Just jot it down. Too many faces looking up here, jot it down. Where are you wasting time? Where do you know in your life right now? I've got too much right here. My life is too caught up over here. And if I don't get rid of this, I'm not going to be able to prioritize the things that matter most. And listen, secondly, do you have clarity on what actually matters most? You see, when you have clarity on how much time the Lord has given you, it, it, it just inevitably produces a greater sense of urgency. And this is what we desperately need. Too many of us are lazy and apathetic and maybe it's a season of your life where that's where you're at and the Lord is just wanting this morning to shake you out of it, 
Come on, let's go. Get back in the game. My grace is sufficient, right? Forgiveness full and free. Praise the Lord. Right? However you've been living, right? This is the turning point. Drive that stake in the ground. Turn this ship around by the grace and power of the Spirit of God within you. Clear urgency, that's where we want to head from this day forward. That is wisdom, by the way. To have clarity and urgency is, biblically speaking, wise. And it takes great wisdom to now live this out as it's fleshed out practically in our lives. And this is why Paul says these next words, and understand what the will of the Lord is. You have to see that these two things are connected. Right? When you understand your time is short, when you understand that there must be clarity in how you live your life and what you prioritize, here's how you do that, by understanding the will of the Lord. This is the best news for you this morning. Listen, you don't have to make this up. You don't have to kind of mysteriously figure this out and, and say, God, would you just kind of show me yeah, as if this is some kind of a mystical pursuit. Here, what we believe Paul is talking about is the very revealed word of God that lights our path, that is a lamp unto our feet. He says, you want to know how to live in this life? Just get your face in the word of God. Soak in the word of God because there you are hearing the heart of God. You are seeing the face of God and you are understanding the will of God. Be clear about what God says to do. That's what wisdom does. And by the way, you're saying, well, there's a whole bunch of areas in my life that the Bible doesn't speak to. Did you know the more you know the word of God, the more clarity you will have in the areas the Bible doesn't speak directly to? The principles of God's word will leap off the pages or leap out of your heart and be applied directly to every circumstance that you face in life. This is a, a deep call this morning to understand God's word, to be much in the word of God, to be much seeking the will of God from the word of God. Some of you are like, well, what, what's God's will for my life? You spend so much time thinking about this question but never opening the Bible. Change that today. Some of you are like, well, I don't even know where to start because I'm not a Christian. Can I just tell you the will of God for you today is that you would be saved. That's where it all begins. It's the will of God for you. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. That God desires all men to be saved. Like, I don't know if God wants to save me. God wants to save you right here, right now. I don't know if God can love me because of all my, God loves you so much that he sent his only son to die for you in your place. I don't know if God could pay for all my sin. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. I don't know if God would accept that sacrifice. Jesus came out of the grave and rose victoriously to the right hand of the Father, accepted by him. And so he calls you this morning out of the darkness. He calls to make you light. Humble yourself this morning Fall to your face in joyful recognition that you are who God says you are, a sinner in desperate need of his saving grace. And let him lift your face up so that you might behold the glory of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Let your heart be so filled with joy and gladness that God would love you and come for you and save you and fully, completely forgive you. Put your faith in him. That is God's will. And then learn to walk in wisdom by knowing the will of God from the word of God. And for this to be possible, here's what we need. Secondly, we need spirit dependency. You see, none of us can be wise in our own strength. None of us can apply the word of God in our own strength. 
None of us can become holy apart from the Spirit's work within us. And so this is not a fleshly pursuit, it is a spiritual pursuit, and it is fully requiring us to be Spirit-dependent people, the Holy Spirit controlling our lives. That's what Paul tells us in verse 18. Notice the, the kind of contrast he gives and the metaphor he uses, the analogy, excuse me. He says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. He contrasts using this analogy of drunkenness. And by the way, a lot of people just focus on the drunkenness in this passage and the drinking in this passage, and they forget the whole other part about being spirit-filled. So let me just be as clear as I can, and let's focus our time on where the text focuses, which is on the being filled with the Spirit. But, but to properly understand what Paul means by that, we must understand what he means by this contrast of drunkenness. So let me just get this out of the way. A drinking is not a sin. Drunkenness is. It is never God's will for a Christian to be drunk. That is sin. Drunkenness also leads to other sins. That's why he says that is debauchery. It is a sin that spirals into other sins. And it is a sin in particular, listen, that leaves a person, the very... The very Practice of being inebriated means to be out of control. It means to lose control. Alcohol, medically speaking, physiologically, is a depressant. It actually numbs your senses so that you don't have control like you do when you're not drunk. That's why it's illegal to have your blood level, a certain alcohol level, and operating uh, machinery. You don't have control. But you see how this makes sense now in terms of what Paul is actually communicating about the Spirit of God? He Don't be controlled by a substance. Don't be out of control, but instead be filled with the Spirit. It's another way of saying, listen, let the Spirit of God control you. Because when the Spirit of God controls you, it doesn't lead you to debauchery and other sin. It leads you to more and more holiness and godliness. It's such a brilliant, brilliant analogy that is given the vividness of this picture, the, the drunk who is wandering around aimlessly, tripping over himself, right, wasting his life away versus the person who is spirit-filled and living with purpose and power, fully yielded and submitted to the will of God. The Holy Spirit makes us self-controlled or God-controlled fills us with a deep sense of joy. You see, where alcohol oftentimes is used to kill and to deaden and to dull our experience of the world, the Spirit of God heightens our experience of the world as it is viewed through its proper perspective, God himself. The Spirit makes you like Jesus, our model for self-control, and all other virtues of the Spirit. And Paul's point here, again, it is influence and control. This is a command, by the way. 
In other words, it's not optional. It's not a suggestion to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's also in the passive voice, which means this. It should be, it's really awkward to translate it, but it's something that happens to you. You know, you participate, but it's happening to you. You can translate it like this. Be being filled. It's also continuous action. There's this constant need to be being filled, and you can envision yourself like like a cup that's being placed under the ever-flowing stream of God's Holy Spirit just placed in the position where the Spirit of God is pouring into your life, is filling you, is influencing you, and controlling the way you live your life, is helping you put sin to death, is helping you to live for the glory of God himself. So how? How do we do this? Honestly, this is so much more simple than maybe many of us have thought Some of us think of being filled with the Spirit as some kind of a a mystical approach to to God and something that only happens to some kind of elite uh, Christians. Did you realize, too, this is in the plural? Paul means this to be the normal, everyday experience for every single follower of Jesus Christ. And if I could just be really simple with this, really what it means is this, turning from what grieves the Holy Spirit. It's kind of been what Paul's talking about. Turning from what grieves the Holy Spirit and doing what delights the Holy Spirit. It's very simple. The parallel passage in Colossians reads like this, in Colossians 3.16 on the screen behind me. Listen to this. This is the parallel. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's the parallel to be being filled with the Spirit. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And you see, the results here are the same. This is why we know it's parallel. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We're going to see that in just a second. But you see, the idea here is is we we must never separate the work of the Spirit of God from the work of the Word of God. And and you can almost understand that let the Spirit of God be filling you like this. It is to be submitted and surrendered and yielding to and obeying the Word of God. You see, when you know the will of God through the Word of God and you submit to it, the Spirit of God not only helps you in that process, but actually pours out into you. To obey the word and to surrender to the spirit are virtually identical here. And here now Paul gives us the result or evidences of being filled with the spirit. And he really gives us just three simple buckets. The first one is singing. He says addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Some of you, the favorite part of that is the last part, that it's happening in your heart. (laughs) Let that sit for a second. You know, one of the clearest evidences of the Spirit's control in our lives is a renewed sense of worship. And one of the greatest expressions of worship in the Christian life is singing. This is evidence of the fact that we're not simply to know Uh, intellectually, but we're also called to feel emotionally. Our our faith is supposed to be experiential. It's not supposed to be all heady and and all intellectual. It is supposed to move to the place of our hearts, the place of affection, to the place of emotion. Our, Our spirituality and our emotions are deeply connected. God's Spirit fills us with joy that we we can't merely or simply talk about, but we must actually sing about. 
right? We sing about something that's affected our heart. And I want you to notice that that's what Paul draws from, that this, this actually flows from our heart. We sing a song here in our church um, that, that kind of really captures this right out the gates, and, and it's the, the first lyrics in the song are, this is where worship begins, here in the temple of our hearts. And I love that because I think that's what Paul is saying. Don't you understand? All true worship of God, all true expression of worship begins in our heart. It begins at the level of, of having an intimate relationship with God and our hearts being stirred for Him. That's where our songs begin. The Spirit's role in our life is to help us to see and to love Jesus. And when we do, our hearts sing. And this is why we believe in passionate, expressive worship in this place. We believe that this should be the normal response to awe and adoration of God. There should be an emotional response in your heart when you think of all that God has done for you in Jesus Christ. It should move you to a place of, of praise. It should put a song in your heart. It should cause you to lift your voice no matter how bad your voice is. It doesn't matter. And there's variety here too. Don't you see the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? And there's a lot of questions about what these are. Psalms are from the Psalter, singing some of the scriptures. Hymns, perhaps like Revelation 4 and 5, the hymn that's being sung in heaven. Or spiritual songs, this may be spontaneous praise, just bursting out of the heart. And you see, there's just great variety in how we sing and how we respond to God in praise. And notice here too that there's a vertical and a horizontal dimension to our singing. We don't gather together to just sing to God, although that is primary. We gather together to sing to one another about God. See, why is that? Because, listen, you encourage others and instruct others through your singing. You remind others of the truths that are real and right and true for them in their lives. We minister to one another in our singing. And this is why we don't just sing songs that say I and me. We have a lot of we and us and our. This is good. Don't change those lyrics, okay? When we're singing those, don't change it to me. Don't make it all personal. It is good for our worship to be corporate. It is good for the body to be together and expressing what God has done, not just for me personally, but for us corporately. Second, notice this, that when we are filled with the Spirit, when we're submitted and yielded to Him, thanking flows. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Constant gratitude. We saw this last week, but we, we need to be reminded really quickly that thankfulness, listen, is a mark of being a Spirit-filled follower of Jesus Christ. And so that means, listen, that if you are marked by grumbling and complaining, if you are marked as a character trait, as being a murmurer or being criticizing all the time of others, a complainer, listen, these are indicators not that the Holy Spirit is being encouraged in you, but is being ignored in you. Spirit-filled believers are thankful, overwhelmingly so. And finally, we see that spirit-filled believers are submitting. This is going to lead into our next section on relationships. But let me just say this. Our, our flesh hates to submit 
He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Our flesh hates to submit to authority, to yield to one another, oftentimes even to submit to the Lord. But submitting, coming under others, deferring to others, following others, sacrificing for others, serving others. This is the very foundation of our relationship with God. We can't separate submission from the Christian life. You see, we come to God in full and complete submission and surrender. That's how we come to him. And so it makes sense that this is going to be a part of how we're called to live in him. When we enter into relationships where out of love we're actually called by the power of the Spirit to have this same attitude with one another, to willingly submit. And we do all this out of reverence for Christ. He's the one ultimately we're submitting to. You see the motive? You see, it's ultimately about our submission to Jesus Christ. That's how we can love each other best, when we are fully submitted and surrendered to him. That's how we can be walking in the spirit of God, fully filled by him, when we are fully submitted and yielded to Christ. We belong to him. We are citizens of his kingdom. He is our king. And the call to be a Christian is the call to gladly submit to his rule and to serve others with love. You see, to truly imitate someone, you have to forget yourself. You have to leave the old behind and become like the one you adore. You have to have a heart that's abandoned unto him. You have to have a life of total surrender. In awe of him who surrendered all for you. Let's pray. Father, we long for that. We long, Lord, to be a body who walks in love, a body who walks in light, and a body who walks in wisdom. And we confess, Lord, that we cannot do this on our own strength. God, we don't have the power to do this. We don't have the ability. And yet, Father, you have poured out your spirit upon us. And you promise, God, as we yield to the Spirit within us, as we submit ourselves to your word, as we strive for obedience and holiness of life, as we strive, Lord, ultimately to imitate you in full and complete surrender, that, God, you will change us from the inside out. And so, Father, we just humbly want to say to you this morning that we are yours. You are our King. And this is the starting place for all true change, Father. It is a complete surrender to you. So God, as we stand together to sing this final song, God, may it truly flow from hearts, hearts, Lord, that are filled with joy, that long to respond to all that you are and all that you've done with passionate praise and adoration. Receive our praise now in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.